A few weeks ago, we kicked off our study chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and in the first chapter, the first verses, we celebrated the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good news. But today, Paul turns a corner, and he says, if you really want to understand the good news You have to receive the bad news. And so the apostle assumes the stance of a prosecutor. And he begins to explain the dreadful, fallen human condition. Ever since the fall of mankind, original sin has come into the world, and the human population is a mess. And he begins to explain now why. The world is in the mess it is, and it is bad news, and it's worse than you think. Beginning in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So far the reading of God's Word. And this passage, well, this passage is not what the writer of Hebrews calls uh, Milk, easy milk to drink. He says there's passages that are milk and there are passages that are meat. And this is a passage of meat. This is thick. This is intense. So don't let the screensaver go up as we unpack this together. But stay with me because I know it's a disturbing passage for many people, especially those who hear it for the first time because it presents for people an 800-pound gorilla in the room. And if you surveyed a thousand Long Islanders today and they heard this passage for the first time, what would be the 800-pound gorilla in the room in our culture? 
Well, they would say, what, Paul? You mean you're against homosexuality? And we have to address that. But you know, Mark Middlecoff, our church planter out in the Hamptons, he pointed out to me in a discussion about this passage that during the Enlightenment in the 1700s, people would not have said homosexuality, uh, it, was the, it was the gorilla in the room. They would have said, what, Paul? Do you a- actually think God has clearly revealed Himself to the world? We don't see God. That's why we need science in this enlightened age to explain the world to us. Come on, Paul. And actually, in the time of Paul, 2,000 years ago, the 800-pound gorilla in the room would not be the declaration that God has uh, revealed Himself or that homosexuality was unnatural and wrong, but the 800-pound gorilla then would be Paul uh, prohibiting and condemning idols because idols were everywhere. Come on, Paul. Where do you get off telling us that our statues and these totems that we've made are are worthless and wrong? Come on, everybody has them, and it's no harm. For them, that was the 800-pound gorilla in the room. But I think, as you read this passage, the real 800-pound gorilla in the room is found in verse 18, and here it is, stomping its way toward us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And it's this sentence that overshadows everything. It is the unhappy news that God is angry with sin and that God is right to reveal reveal His wrath against it. What does this mean that He reveals His wrath? So now I ask you a question about your conception of God. Does your understanding of God allow you to know that He is angry at sin? And I'm sure that in a group of this size, there are people here who say, Oh no, not my God. My God is love. My God is likable. My God is not petulant and angry. My God is nice. Well, Tim Keller, in his book, Reason for God, he says this, if God is not angry at sin, that is to say, if God is indifferent to the violence and the cruelty, to the wickedness that is engaging all around the world, if God does not care about the little child who is beat up by the bullies or the, the, the rape that happens or the, the theft that happens, if God is just sort of winks and says, boys will be boys, then He is certainly not loving. But precisely because He is loving and just and righteous and full of compassion, He is properly angry at sin. And what is the focus of his anger? The middle of verse 18 tells us. The wrath of God is revealed against all two words, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Ungodliness, what is that? 
That is simply a disregard for God. The people that you work with, you go to school with, and they say, I don't really know about God, and I don't really care about God. And they live their life without any reference to God. That is ungodliness. And where does ungodliness, that, that, uh, and where does ungodly without God, where does ungodliness lead? It leads to unrighteousness. We learned last two weeks ago, righteousness is God's moral perfection, His integrity, His, His truthfulness within Himself. God is righteous. And unrighteousness then refers to moral pollution, corruption, and the evil that flows from our selfish, proud, lustful, greedy, arrogant hearts. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Do you see ungodliness in the world and unrighteousness in the world? Everybody can see it. Do you see it inside yourself? And that really leads into point number two. Do we really understand our depraved condition? Because the Scriptures teach that all human beings are ignorant and rebellion toward God. As we saw from the text in a much less flattering way, you say, John, I didn't come here to be insulted. I came to be encouraged. And yet there is ungodliness and unrighteousness in every fallen human being. This is what we call the doctrine of total depravity. Have you heard the term total depravity? The consequences of Adam's sin, original sin, is born in every human being. And as it flows through the ages, it teaches that our hardened hearts result in the mind being confused and broken and darkened. The will becoming rebellious and autonomous and loving itself, and the emotions being broken and twisted and battered. So Paul, in our text, explains the descent into depravity through three exchanges that occur in the human heart. Did you hear them as I was reading them? They're in the text where people exchange the glory of God so they can worship idols. People exchange the truth about God for lies. And then as they are given over to, over to sinful passions and immorality, he illustrates this by describing the exchange of natural, proper sexual activity to a depraved and unnatural sexuality. So let's unpack these exchanges as he lays them out in this text. In verse 23, he speaks about an idolatrous exchange of God for the worship of created things. People forget God. And it is a denial of the most fundamental theological category every Christian should know, the most basic Theological category, what is it? There is a God. Okay? There is a God. 
all is not just natural. There is a supernatural realm. And the fundamental sin is the denial of God, the exchange of God, in order that we may worship idols. You know, it's interesting, Mark Middlecoff in our conversation, he said, suppose, John, the people listening to you on Sunday morning stop coming to church. They get tired of you, Yenchiko. They stop coming to church. He said, have they stopped worshiping? What do you think? The answer is no. Because everybody worships. Everybody worships all the time. The human heart is a worshiping heart, loving and bowing down to that which it loves and aspires to. Everybody worships something. Now, billions of people uh, go worship idols, and you could go join the the billion Hindus who worship the thousands of deities. You could do that. There's thousands of little gods you could do puja and worship. You could join the voodoo animists in Africa. There's hundreds of millions of animists. You could join them in their style of worship. Or or you could go to the American idolatrous altar of financial security. Or the altar of sensual pleasure. Or you could go to the altar of your children and live exclusively for them above all. You know, John Calvin said the human heart is an idol-making factory. Anybody ever see that great, maybe the greatest episode of I Love Lucy where they're working in a chocolates factory? You know, and, and, the, and they're supposed to package the chocolates as they come out, right? Lucy and Ethel, and they start coming out, and then they come out faster and faster out of the machine. It's like our hearts, and Lucy and Ethel are trying to stuff them in their mouth and put them in the boxes. Our hearts are idol-generating factories. We exchange God to worship our idols. The second exchange is that we exchange the truth about God and His Word for lies. We see this in verse 25, right? They exchange the truth about God for a lie, and then something insulting. And they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Gosh, Pastor John, he's not very politically correct. He's not much of a gentleman, is he? When he says the results of our depraved minds is that we exchange truth for a lie and our hearts are foolish and darkened, that the very misunderstandings we have are sinful, that our minds are sinfully corrupt. We call this, it's theological language, we call this the noetic effects of sin. The reason you are confused about God The reason people living around us get confused about God is because they don't want to know God. The naturalist, the atheist, you see, the atheist, he feels very good about his worldview, the natural world, denying the supernatural. You know, George Bernard Shaw, who was a great English playwright, 
he himself an atheist, very influential. Shaw said, uh, as he observed in 1859, when Charles Darwin published The Origin of the Species, and, and George Bernard Shaw described the tremendous reception of Darwin's book by saying this. He said, the world leaped at Darwin. Why? He says, the world leaped to embrace Darwin because Darwin provided them the means by which they could justify their fondest wish that they could eliminate the living God from their world. At last, we have an explanation of the world that does not need God, and that is wonderful. It's just what we wanted. And it's described at the end of verse 18 as suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. What's this suppressing the truth? It's the Greek word katakine. It's like taking a big beach ball at, to the, out to the ocean and you're trying to keep the beach ball in the water under the surface of the water and you sit on it, you know? You try and hold it down, but it, it floats up until you can get it and you push it down again. And, the, and the, that's like the truth of God. The truth of God, it says, is evident everywhere. Photosynthesis, the taking of sunlight and turning it by means of a leaf into sugars that we can eat. The beating of a 12-week-old baby's heart in the womb. The glorious sunshine. All shouts, there is a creator. And you are to be grateful for every breath you take, every day you live, every gift you enjoy. But we're like the ball, we try and suppress that truth. Because our fondest wish is to eliminate the God to whom we are accountable for our ungodliness. And we not only deny God, but is it fair to say that we deny our own sin and corruption? Every excuse I make to my wife about my belligerent behavior, every sin I commit I blame on other people. It, is it fair to say I'm also in denial about my own corruption? David Brooks, one of my favorite writers in the New York Times, he, he's not a Christian, but I think he must have studied Romans 1. Because in 2011, he wrote a column entitled, Let's All Feel Superior. Here's what he says. He said, people are really good at self-deception. We attend to the facts we like and suppress the ones we don't. We inflate our own virtues and predict that we will behave more nobly than we actually do. He says, in our culture, we are not Puritans anymore. We live, here's what he says, catch this. We live in a society oriented around our own inner wonderfulness. And he goes on to say, the proper question is, how can we ourselves overcome our natural tendency to self-deceive 
It's a question that our society has a hard time asking because the most seductive evasion is the one that leads us to deny the underside of our own nature. Have you come to the place where you no longer have to deny the underside of your own nature? Anybody who's ever been a drug addict or an alcoholic, they will tell you the only way out from addiction is to be honest. And they are right. People don't turn a corner and find freedom until they no longer are trying to suppress the truth about their own addictions and sins. And so tragically, people don't understand the depth and severity of our depraved condition, but Point number three, how does God respond to our rebellion? Because the bad news now gets worse. For it now says that God has given human beings up to the lusts of our hearts and into all kinds of sinful passions. It's right from the text. You know, this is why we don't just pick which verses we're going to choose from. When you preach through a book of the Bible, you've got to address the text that's in there. And that's what we're doing. Three times we are told in the text, man makes exchanges. And three times we read that God responds and gives men up. What does that mean? Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Then look at verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And the text next week will rise to a thundering crescendo as God gives men up to a long litany of sins. This giving up, it means to let go and hand over. How can I illustrate this? Some of you know parents parents of adult children, and their adult children live as though their mom and dad were dead. It's just now the way the young man or the young woman is. They have no interest in them. They turn from them, and even though their mother and father have loved them and reached out to them and provided for them, nonetheless, this young man or this young woman totally ignores them and wants to go their own way and live their own life. And the parents, with tears and with a broken heart, what else do they do? They say, okay, go your own way and see where the stream of your commitment to depravity takes you. It's called technically judicial abandonment. We do let you go. And you suffer the consequences of where the stream takes you. And God has done this. Just as he handed Israel over to those nations that they made sinful alliances with. And God handed Israel over to them. 
and God gives us up to the worship of idols and given over to all kinds of immorality, and he looks in his culture and he says to all kinds of immoral sexual practices. Certainly verse 24 is talking about adultery and lust and um, all sorts of heterosexual sins. But then in verses 26 through 28, he speaks about an even more unnatural sexual activity. He speaks about homosexuality. And here for a moment, well, I do want us to address the 800-pound gorilla in the room for the New Yorkers around whom we live. Because we live in such a highly sexualized culture in general. And now we live in a culture that has begun, especially with ferocity and with increasing delight, to promote homosexuality in particular. And what a year it has been here in America, as Ashley Madison has now exposed the millions of people who've signed up for an adulterous affair. What a year! As Bruce Jenner announces to the world, he is a woman and is honored by ESPN as the most courageous athlete in the world. What a year it's been as the Supreme Court of the United States. Five people rule that marriage is not a covenant of companionship in a complementary heterosexual way. And that is no more. So it's been quite a year, and yes, we do well to address it. That being said, church, this is not just a social issue, particularly homosexuality, and that's because every one of us have faces and names associated with this. We have relatives or colleagues that we work with or Our children have friends at school, and and there are names and faces to it. And even in the church, there are people who struggle wrestling with gender identity and same-sex attraction. And so, just at the forefront right here and now, I I want to say that if there are people here today who wrestle with same-sex attraction, well, I'm glad you're here. And on behalf of the elders of this church, we're glad the door was open and you came in. We welcome you. I personally just would say, if you want to talk about these things in private, I would be glad to go to lunch or to just meet in my office with you. And and, and I would like to hear your journey. And I would like to be able to talk with with you about what the Bible says. Glad to do that. We are glad that you're here. And of course, at the same time, as a church, we need to have honesty and integrity as we talk about sexuality. In this crazy, sexualized world, I want to affirm clearly that the Bible teaches the long-standing traditional view of marriage between a man and a woman. And the Bible teaches the historic commitment to sexual ethics that say sex is a beautiful gift from God to be 
the place where a man and a woman say to each other, I'm giving myself completely to you to bless you, to be naked and unashamed with you, and if God in His providence should grant it to give children. And we affirm that that is good, not dirty, but good. And yet, then we affirm that God has reserved that activity for those within the covenant of companionship of marriage. Because it's a lie to say, I'm giving myself completely to you, naked and unashamed, if I can just walk out the door tomorrow and end our friendship. You've got to give me back our friendship ring, you know. And so... It is sinful, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual sexual activity outside of marriage. If you're not sure about this, if you're wrestling with it, give me a call. I'm happy to talk. Or any of our pastors and elders would be glad to talk with you. But I want to say something to the church here, and it's this. Sometimes I listen to people in the church talk about this, and they're just so surprised and upset with the way the culture is going. I'm just shocked and appalled that non-Christians are acting like non-Christians. Well, should you be surprised? Really? And I'm not about a culture war here. But it is a great temptation for people to leave the faith because of our highly sexualized culture that calls them and seduces them into sexual activity because our passions run so deep and are so strong. We have been given over. And what is to be love becomes lust. And what is to be giving becomes taking. The boy walks into the locker room after a date and the guys say, what did you get off of her? Right? They don't say, what did you give? And so what is to be beautiful and righteous is a part of our depravity. People leave the faith over it. It's funny, you know, Tim Keller once told me that kids graduate from high school, they go off to college, and after their first semester, particularly philosophy 101 or religion 101, they come back, and, and, and he says, I, John, I get together with these college students, and they, they explain to me, Pastor, I'm having a real crisis of faith. I don't really believe what I was taught in youth group anymore. And Tim says, not always, but usually I just smile and say, okay, tell me who you're sleeping with. <laughs> it's not a crisis of faith. It's that they're free to go do their own thing and to be led along by their lusts. And, and as you know, people's creeds follow their deeds. Right? 
What they believe has to conform to how they really want to act, you see. So we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, we exchange God's ways for a lie, and we have to build our own religious idolatry in order to rationalize our behavior. It's just what people do. But right now, just for a few minutes, I want to ask, as followers of Jesus, with the Bible as our authority, How do we think about and relate to people who identify as gay or people who experience same-sex attraction? The position of our elders, the position of our denomination is what I said earlier. We're committed to sexuality between a husband and wife and complementary genders, male and female. And so we find ourselves today in the unenviable task of standing against the tsunami of cultural dynamics that are washing over us, celebrating and promoting that which is contrary to the Bible. Now, if you're going to talk about this with anyone, you really have to begin, or somewhere near the beginning, you have to talk about what I put in in your bulletin, in the reflection here, in your bulletin. Don't leave your bulletin on the pew this morning. Take it home with you. Cut this out. Put it on your refrigerator. Because to talk with anyone, you have to be able to agree with this quote. You have to talk about this. Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear them or hate them, right? Since you disagree, you're a hater. Or since you disagree, you're phobic. The first lie is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second lie is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise your convictions to be compassionate. And really, you just can't talk with people in our culture today unless you can get common, stand, common ground standing on those two issues, all right? Got to get that clear first. Then, then we can talk. Now, concerning homosexuality, this, is, this passage is clear, and there are quite a few other passages of the Bible that explain it as unnatural and out of accord with the will of God. And you know what? It's not just conservative fundamentalists who think this. I went to the University of Virginia. The great professor of New Testament named Dan Vaya is a great scholar there. Now, he is pro-gay. He's very liberal. He's not a a self-professed Christian man. But he's a good scholar. And in his book, Homosexuality and the Bible, he says... The biblical texts that deal specifically with homosexual practice condemn it unconditionally. At least he's an honest liberal, all right? Because there are books out there that say, well, no, the church has misread, the church doesn't understand the Bible. But Dan Vaya, he says, no, they got it right. And another commentator says, efforts to twist the text to mean what it clearly does not say are deplorable. See, people make efforts to twist the text so that it doesn't say what it says. 
That's deplorable. Simply put, the Bible is negative towards same-sex behavior, and there is no getting around it, end quote. But I would argue that the greatest argument against homosexuality is not the prohibitions. It's the positive picture from beginning in Genesis where God establishes Adam and Eve together as the paradigm for marriage and sexual intimacy through the Gospels where Jesus Christ affirms, have you not read that God created man, male, and female, and this is the complementary uh, joining of two lives in marriage, all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation where Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, comes for His bride. Men in this church, are you secure enough in your masculinity to acknowledge that you are the bride of Christ? Yeah, Christ is different, and He comes for His bride. And that, that is the biggest argument for complementary gender marriage and sexual activity. And so what is obvious, he says, The exchanging of righteous sexuality for that which is unnatural and perverse is a result of God giving men over to the passions of their heart. And this leads to the final question, number four, because our section concludes with this unhappy reality. It says that sinners receive the due penalty of their errors. And this brings us back to the 800-pound gorilla that we were talking about in verse 18 that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, and there will be a judgment day, and the due penalty will be paid. So what is God's solution to the due penalty we deserve? It is, of course, you know, the cross of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who took the penalty of death that I deserve, I deserve for my sexual immorality, for my greed, for my racial prejudice, for my unkindness, for my selfishness, and for all of yours. Suppose you're here and you experience same-sex attraction and you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. What would we say to you? We would say what this text says to us. We are wrong in our sin and we are loved. That's what we would say. You're wrong and you're loved. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Have you received the free gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord? On a Sunday night in November, in a couple of weeks, the elders have approved, we're going to have an open forum discussion on this topic of sexuality and homosexuality in particular. We want to talk with parents about how you discuss this with your college students, with your children, 
And, and so I hope you'll come out for that. We haven't decided if it'll be a Friday night or a Sunday night, but stay tuned when we can get this into the schedule. But if someone is here and they say, Pastor, I wrestle with same-sex attraction, and I hear that now the, the Bible is saying this is not according to God's good plan, what would you say to them? Josh Moody, who is the pastor of the Three Village Church out in Setauket, gives a very helpful answer to this. And he reminded me of the discussion where, or the, the place in John 8 where Jesus, where the Pharisees bring a woman caught in adultery. Do you remember that passage, John 8? They bring a woman caught in adultery to Jesus, and they rush her into the temple, and she's half clothed, and they throw her down, and they say, Master, what should we do? The law of Moses says this woman must be stoned. What does Jesus do? Remember, Jesus kneels down and he writes in the dust. And Josh Moody says, you know, at that very moment when the tension was so fierce, Jesus turns all the focus off of the woman and onto himself, and he creates a safe space for her. And can our church do that? Can we create a safe space where people who struggle can come and be among us? I hope we can. I will not have this church be the gay-hating church. We will not be that. We are to love all people. But those Pharisees, they press Jesus in verse 7, and they say, so what should we do? And Jesus answers them brilliantly. Remember what he said? He said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. What is he saying here? He's saying, yeah, it's worthy of death. The law of God says so. It is worthy of death. But, but, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. And we're told the old, older ones, they walked away. They got it before the young, impetuous young men with stones in their hand. Until there was just one person standing there, and who was that? It was Jesus. Who himself was without sin, and who did not crush her with a stone. Why? because he knew that in just a few days he would die on the cross for her sins and my sins and your sins. But you can't leave this story without verse 11. What does it say? And so he says, do they condemn you? She said, no. He said, neither do I condemn you. You see, there was grace. And then he says, listen carefully. Then he says, go, and from now on, sin no more. You see, while he created, created a safe space for someone who needed that space, at the same time, he says, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me and live a life of holiness and purity in discipleship. And so here's what this means for people who have same-sex attraction. It means it's not okay to follow Jesus and engage in same-sex activity 
just as it's not okay to follow Jesus and engage in adulterous activity, heterosexual activity outside the covenant of marriage. Okay, do you understand? He says, go and sin no more. But if you're my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. And so here's what this looks like. If you want to be a member of Christ's church, this church, and you struggle with same-sex attraction, what is discipleship for you? And I would say sufficient to help God's grace is sufficient to help you in two ways. The first way is singleness and celibacy. What? That's right. Singleness and celibacy. And people immediately say, oh, that's not fair, that's not right. You consign them to a life of loneliness? No, we don't. There are many single people in the life of this church who have a rich social life of fellowship and enjoyment of friendships with men and women in the body of Christ that is healthy and nourishing and uplifting. You know, there's a book by a a professor, an evangelical Christian professor named Wesley Hill, who came out as someone who experiences same-sex attraction. And he explores what does it mean to be single and celibate. The name of the book is Washed and Waiting. And he talks about the struggles that it is for him, and yet the joy and the richness of being beloved in the body of Christ with other members in the body of Christ. The other option is heterosexual marriage. What? People say. I'm not talking about reparative therapy, but I am saying that some people do change over time by God's grace in their orientation. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you, and it puts it in the past tense. And even some people who continue to wrestle with same-sex attraction live a, a, a faithful monogamous life in a heterosexual marriage. I know I have mentioned before Rosaria Butterfield, who gives this powerful story in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And she identifies herself as a leftist lesbian professor in a liberal college. Okay, what is she? She's right out there. I'm a leftist lesbian professor in a liberal college. She delighted in being hostile toward Christians. She wrote a a powerful diatribe against promise keepers in the 1990s that was widely published. But she got a letter from a pastor in Syracuse named Ken Smith, and he just wrote a very respectful letter saying, you know, I would love to just talk with you about the presuppositions and assumptions that underlie your positions. I think that would be interesting, he said. My wife and I would love to have you over for dinner. And she said, you know, I'm a professor. And I can rarely get college students to think about assumptions and presuppositions. She says, I love that stuff. And so to their surprise, she accepted their invitation. And she said, I came to their home, and would you believe, I became friends with this Reformed Presbyterian pastor in Syracuse. And we had book exchanges, and they met my friends And we talked about sexuality and politics, and it didn't seem to bother them. She said, he also prayed 
He prayed before meals, and he prayed for me. And she said his prayers were intimate and warm with his God. And his God was holy and firm and yet full of mercy. And he urged me to read the Bible. And so I started to read the Bible. And she said, I read the Bible ravenously. I read, the, I devoured the Bible as a glutton devours. And I began to wonder, what if it's true? What if Jesus really is the Lord, the risen Lord, who conquered sin and death? She said, my friends tried to warn me, what are you doing? What are you doing reading this book? And then she says, on one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked, and Jesus triumphed. She said, I was a broken mess. My conversion was a train wreck. I didn't want to lose everything that I loved. And yet, I believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world, and so I drank of the living water, tentatively, privately, then in the church community, and then in a covenant marriage where one man calls me wife, and many children call me mother. It's a powerful book, second book, Openness Unhindered. I think that Pastor Ken Smith and his wife are a vivid example of what Jesus would call us to be as a church, to welcome all people with hospitality and His love, and yet at the same time to call them to Jesus, to follow Him. Because we've all engaged in terrible, great exchanges, and so we all need to come to the one who was stoned, who was crucified, who was put to death to pay the due penalty for our sins. Have you done that? Have you done that? Come to the place where you humbled yourself and then like Rosaria Butterfield, come open-handed and naked to Jesus and say, you have triumphed over me. I hope that you have. We come now to the Lord's Supper, to communion, and um, I want us to confess as we prepare our hearts again the great exchanges that we've made, the idols in our heart, that we may be cleansed and we can follow Him as His disciples. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that Your truth stands, though our hearts would ex exchange truth for a lie. Your truth stands, and we are glad. So, Lord, as we take communion, we're going to have silence to confess our sins, our exchanges, and to, to put our sins upon you and to welcome your righteousness in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.